public offering and a private 506 investment round, which was counterintuitive. Exactly. Securities practitioners' brains were on the wall, everyone's head exploded, but this is what Congress ruled. So the SEC wrote rules for this, and they reined it in a little bit from, I think, the intent of Congress. Hi, welcome to the Fieldwork Podcast, a show where continuing legal education is delivered through conversations about law and business. This episode, our host, Kyle Holton, will be interviewing Jordan Rood on the various aspects of startup financing. Jordan is a corporate and securities attorney in Seattle, Washington. So from the attic in Tangletown, this is The Fieldwork. Uh, all right, so tonight we're talking to Jordan Rood. We are talking about startup issues, um, in particular financing startups and uh, what those deals look like and what people need to be concerned about when they're helping, helping folks uh, raise some money for their startups. So, uh, Jordan, thanks for coming tonight. Hey, g- glad to be here, Kyle. Thanks. So, let's start by talking a little bit about your background. So, you worked um, coming out of coming out of law school. Where where did you work at? So, right out of law school, it was in the uh, the death zone of 2010. So, actually, uh, yes. like yourself, a few classmates, a few classmates and myself started our own law practice, and uh, things were actually starting to go pretty well. But after about nine months, an opportunity to go to the Washington State Securities Division came about. So, nice. I. Uh, I applied. They decided they liked me. Guaranteed paycheck. Guaranteed paycheck. Nothing to sneeze at at that point. Yep. The government was still collecting tax revenue at yep. that point. Uh, and it was also an opportunity to focus on securities law all of the time, which was a big emphasis yeah. of mine in law school and sort of why I went to law school, business law, financings, things like that. So it was a great opportunity. So in 2011, I started at the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions, which is where the mouthful. Securities Division lives. Yep. It's a mouthful, so Securities Division for short. Yep. And then I spent three and a half years at Securities Division. And then at that juncture, an opportunity arose to go to my current firm, which is uh, McNall Ebel. It's in downtown Seattle. And I work with Bill Carlton. And we do a lot of startup law, startup financing, soup to nuts, general counsel, outside general counsel for corporations. Uh, if it's something strange a startup can do, we see it. So it's a lot of cool. fun. What was uh, one of your favorite things about uh, working at the Securities Division? There's a lot to like about the Securities Division. One of my favorite things, it's a good question. She saw a lot of variety from very sophisticated, we'd get registration statements for $2 billion uh, public non-traded read offerings Mm -hmm. down to lots of Rule 506 and 504 exemption filings where there might be something a little bit off about it. So we'd request the materials and you'd get a range of either really polished sort of private placement memorandum and documents to just sometimes with really bad documents and you yeah. have to try and figure out what's going on and you know, get in contact with the issuers and the principals and usually they weren't fraudsters or anything like that. They just right. had never heard of securities laws before. And so it was the variety of issues in the sorts of deals you would see uh, at the division was probably the most interesting part. Cool. What about the, uh, so that transition to working at McNall, what was, uh, what was like something really cool about switching to the, the private sector? It was very interesting to go to the private sector as when you're a regulator and particularly when I'd gone, being a regulator very quickly out of school is you don't have a lot of deal experience or a lot of transaction experience. So you can be, depends on the regulator, but myself was sort of inclined to give issuers and their counsel the benefit of the doubt because we would see sort of these finally these nicely packaged sets of documents they look well done professional and you don't 
particularly have know where the bodies are buried unless you're sort of tipped off. Whereas switching over to McNall, I got firsthand experience yeah. in like where all the bodies were buried. <laughs> Not necessarily because our clients were doing things wrong, but you can see just as you work through deals, transactions, forming companies, all of these points where uh, issues can come up or things get missed or your clients just go dark on you for three months and they pop up and yeah. they tell you they've issued safes, <laughs> notes, want to yeah. sell stock on all these various terms. And you're like, whoa, good to know you're still alive. Yeah. That's, we're going to have to actually do some things there to make that happen. Yeah. So that's the sort of stuff you don't see as a regulator that you get to see daily in private practice it was really eye-opening. Yeah, the stuff the attorneys try and, like, cover up and, like, well, maybe just, like, fix for their clients. No, exactly. Yeah. It's just sort of, and that's, it's not out of the ordinary or, like, I can say fraud, fraudulence is the word I'll throw around, but it's not um, untoward. It's just sort of part of the filling in the gaps to help clients yeah. get their stuff together. Yeah. Generally, the I think the people that work with lawyers are not the ones that are trying to commit frauds, although I suppose some people might try and take a attorney's name as a something that would give them credence to carry out their fraud but exactly we had a malpractice insurance carrier do their dog and pony show annually and bring us lunch etc and their term for those are unworthy clients yes. so <laughs> yeah yeah most that clients are. <laughs> are not unworthy clients so. yeah so was that uh, at McNall or at uh, the securities division that the insurance people would come talk to you Oh, that's Ed McNall. It's just our annual. The insurance company comes, thanks us for you know buying yeah. our insurance because we have to. Gives us lunch, does a PowerPoint. We get a CLE credit, which nice. you know something yeah. about. Sweet. <laughs> yep. Um, so tonight, I think we'll we'll touch on two main subtopics. Um, one being deal terms, and then another one being securities regulations. And we sort of uh, touched on securities regulations you mentioned like 504 and 506 exemptions i think it might help to just start with a background on um what a secure what a security is what what someone needs to be worried about just generally like what is the securities regulation framework like at a high level absolutely and uh i can kind of jump into the weeds pretty quickly on this stuff so if you think <laughs> i'm getting out there just reel me back and cool. i can clarify or explain so trying to put my regulator back uh hat back on where you have to explain this in the yeah. funds relatively so, simply I would try yeah anyways the securities act so securities are essentially any interest sold to another person by a company in which there's a some sort of interest in future profits expectation of future profits some sort of future return that's being it's predicated or contingent on the efforts of others mm -hmm. managers etc so it's a I guess roundaboutly, a you give somebody money in exchange for a future return and or future profit, and they're doing the work, or at least part of the work. It's not your own sole efforts. So, in the 19th century and the early 20th century, also known as the Gilded Age, there were essentially zero securities regulations. People would get off the train station to Topeka, Kansas, sell a bunch of stock certificates, get on the train, move down the line, never heard from again. Um, this sort of fraud continued for a long time, so states individually started passing their own securities acts. Kansas was the first, coincidentally, um, but so did Washington was relatively early. And as this went along, uh, the Great Depression happened in 1929 after the, the crash. That prompted the Federal Securities Act to be passed, which modernized the securities laws at the time and created a federal framework. And since 1933, there's been this dual layer of securities regulation in the United States. If you want to sell securities to investors, stock, bonds, notes, options, warrants, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, 
the securities need to be registered or exempt from registration with both the federal government and each state in which one of the investors resides. So, for instance, if I wanted to sell stock to you, Kyle, and you lived in Washington, yeah. I would have to have be registered or exempt with both the federal government, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Washington State Department of Financial, Inst- Financial Institutions, since you're a Washington resident. Yep, that makes sense. So, was that uh, too yeah. weedy for you? No, or that, that, makes that was sense? that was perfect, totally. So, with the the interstate practice, is that um, a challenging aspect of, of your practice? Like the figuring out, like if a client's trying to sell in a bunch of different states, does that make your job harder? It can make our job harder. Um, before the internet and electronic filings, in fact, that would be a large logistical problem to, let's say you've got investors in 20 states, you have to handle the federal aspects, but also filings in 20 different jurisdictions, paper filings. Each state has their own sort of quirks. A lot of the rules are similar, but they're a little bit different, so you have to be up to date on all of the rules in each state, and that can be cumbersome. Um, We'll probably talk about Rule 506 in a little bit, but particularly if you're relying on a Rule 506 filing, there's now a handy electronic system that allows you to make your federal and state filings simultaneously, so it's cool. gotten much easier. What's that called? Uh, the the NASA, N-A-S-A-A, Electronic Filing Depository, so EFD for short. Gotcha. Different than the things that go to the outer space, though. That's, exactly. That's a lot of acronyms for yeah. something short. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> so I hope all of you wrote that down out there. Yeah. <laughs> That's for, uh, for Kyle to handle. <laughs> So let's jump into a hypothetical here. Mm-hmm. You're about to take a meeting with a founder who's reached out and said they're looking to do a seed round. Let's first start with uh, what is a seed round, and then second, what are the types of questions you might ask that founder? Sure, that's a great question. And so, Kyle, just to clarify, by a seed round, is this sort of the initial like friends, family, hypothetically, or is this presuming it's sort of an outside round of the venture capitalists or angels? What just want to make sure I get the the answer correct there. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm th- I'm thinking more like it's the first time they're taking money. It's less than a million bucks. It Got might it. be like you know five hundred thousand dollars, that sort of thing. Cool. Just wanted to, to yep. clarify, it wasn't a serious seed round with a bunch of uh, yeah. angel investors, etc. So first financing, the questions I would ask are where are these people? Who are they? Are they your friends, your family, people you know? Um, a, an important distinction under the Federal Securities Act and State Securities Act are that when you're selling securities in a private transaction, which is what we'd like to have these be, you're required typically to have a pre-existing relationship with those individuals. So uh, another question along those lines would be, are you advertising on the internet or anywhere? If you are, you need to stop because otherwise you'll create problems for yourself. And then a key question is, are these the individuals you're talking to to give you money accredited? Uh, which is a term of art under both the state and federal securities acts. It's sort of regulatory shorthand for are they rich people? Right. If you're selling to only rich people, it is much easier from a regulatory perspective to raise money under the Securities Act. If you're selling to non-accredited investors, um, which unfortunately about 90% of Americans are, the Securities Act provides them many more protections, but on the flip side, that makes it much more difficult for businesses to comply with those regs. And unfortunately that also they run into this issue typically when they're a small business without a lot of capital to pay lawyers to deal with yep. that. So th- that's, those are the sort of grounding questions I would ask in, in addition to, you know, what's the business, what's your product, yeah. all the other sort of general business questions. I want to hone in on who their investor base is, uh, how sophisticated they are, and that would start framing which way and also where the arc of where they see the company going. If it's going to be 
we're going to open a flower shop or an ice cream shop. We have one round of financing, cash flow business. Maybe it's okay to have unaccredited, unaccredited investors, but if their plan is to raise several rounds of uh, venture capital money down the line, uh, it may change, it may make it less attractive to raise money from uh, smaller investors sure. early on. Hey everyone, this is Kyle and Jeff from the Fieldwork Podcast. Keep listening and we'll share the code you'll need to get your CLE credits. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you put your uh, regulator hat back on, what uh, what's the rationale for only including accredited investors? Like, what are the regulators trying to get at when they when they limit it in that fashion? And then, like, why why is the the that threshold just a wealth threshold essentially? These are great questions. So the the intent of the law is, and the Securities Act generally is to protect the retail public, which is again is about you know ninety percent of by the income on they draw of regular Americans from securities fraud and malfeasance. And that's another part of the securities division work you see is when you're dealing with legitimate clients, um, there's no fraud. People are doing things above board. There's a ton of financial fraud out there that's kind of under the rug. You don't see that. Yeah. You got to see the division. So there's, these laws exist for a reason. Uh, but also, the Securities Act essentially states uh, roughly that rich people can fend for themselves, quote unquote. They don't uh-huh. need to avail themselves of the protections of the Securities Act. Uh, the way the accredited investor line is drawn is it's a wealth test, more or less. So for individuals, it's individual income of two hundred thousand dollars a year, or three hundred thousand with your spouse, or a million dollars a year uh, minus the value. Pardon me, net worth of a million dollars less the home your home equity and your primary residence, and they adjust for inflation or will be adjusting for inflation soon. So. Yeah, the, the first argument is like, well, I know plenty of rich people that aren't smart or just inherited their money, et cetera, and that's true, but to date, over the last 80 years or so, the commission has just drawn the line with the pure wealth test. There's always sort of legislation process to change to maybe a sophistication test mm-hmm. or have some other ways to ID these investors, but for now, it's just this flat line. Do you make a significant income or do you have significant um, net worth? And if you meet those thresholds, and you are an accredited investor, if you are issuing stock to only accredited investors, you can claim an exemption from registration under the Securities Act. And the exemption is important. Let me step back for a minute. I was saying earlier about how securities needed to be registered or exempt from registration under the Securities Acts. When I say registration, that means literally a full-blown IPO, prospectus, S1, filings with the SECs, lawyers, accountants, etc. Technically, whenever you sell any securities to anybody, that is the default of where Gotta do that. you need what you need to do. Exactly. As you might note, most people don't do that. They right, find there's only a handful of those a year, right? Exactly. I think there's now 3,000 publicly traded companies and there's about 100 IPOs a year, or at least on the major markets. Mm-hmm. So obviously, most people avail themselves of exemptions from registration. The most popular one is Rule 506, which I've referenced before. And a feature of Rule 506 is if you sell to only accredited investors, you can raise an unlimited amount of money from an unlimited amount of investors, so long as they're accredited. And the disclosure requirements of what information you are required to give them are much more relaxed, whereas you have to give non-accredited investors a significant amount of information, even in a private transaction, uh, information similar to what you'd receive in a prospectus in a public offering. With accredited investor-only offerings, the commission doesn't provide 
any required disclosure. Um, it's negotiated between the investors and the company. The, the only real requirement is you can't have material omissions of fact or make fraudulent sure. statements. Uh, you still have to comply with that rule. So if you sell to only accredited investors, you can raise a lot of money from um, potentially a lot of investors and the time, money, resources you have to put into disclosure and securities compliance is much relaxed, which is why um, most, if not all, venture capital deals are done with that Five exemption. Six. Five or six. Yeah. I, um, because it's just it's sort of I'll call it the uh, the high, the super highway to raise money. Yeah, just it's the easiest option, and people are familiar with it, etc. That that makes sense. So uh, there's a couple of different varieties of, of 506, right? Can you talk about the difference between 506, the couple options there? Absolutely. So there's 506B and 506C, to be exact. And it's a good question because I mentioned earlier, somebody comes into the office, they start telling me about they're looking to raise money, who are they about? And I said, you know, are you advertising? Are you soliciting publicly? And the reason that's a key question is if you are uh, doing what's called a general solicitation, you are advertising publicly on your website, on your social media, generally out there talking to investors or seeking investors publicly from um, people you don't know, that will de facto prevent you from being able to raise money under 506B, which is the cl I'll call it classic rule 506. So, which is a problem because, as I was saying, that's how most people go about raising money. Uh, in, so in that's out the window. Exactly. Gone. Boof. You have to wait six months at a minimum to even have the chance of uh, getting back into that round, which, when you're running your business, can be an eternity. So, in 2012, Congress passed what's called the Jobs Act, and it created Rule 506C, which um, was a mechanism for allowing, counterintuitively, public solicitation for private investment. So it's a public offering and a private 506 investment round, which well, caused counterintuitive. Exactly. Securities practitioners' brains were on the wall, yeah. everyone's head exploded, <laughs> but this is what Congress ruled. So the SEC wrote rules for this, and they reined it in a little bit from, I think, the intent of Congress, and you know some people were unhappy about that, but the rules they set forth were you can raise money publicly online, go bananas, but you can only sell to accredited investors and uh, you have to verify that they are accredited. And that's different from Rule 506B because in Rule 506B, technically you can sell up to 35 unaccredited investors in addition to uh, an unlimited amount of accredited investors. Under C, you can't have a single one of, or your exemption is blown and you have to verify that, which under Rule 506B, you can rely on representations from the investors that they are accredited, and unless you have actual knowledge, otherwise you can rely on that. So they just sign a piece of paper? Exactly. Got it. They check a box in a questionnaire, yep. sign a piece of paper, I swear I'm accredited, good to go. The be a little more complicated than that, but I'll move on sure, from yeah. that point. <laughs> Under Rule 506C, you have to verify, and that requires getting, there's four ways enumerated by the SEC. They're not dispositive, but they are sort of the foundational ways you have to go about doing it. And that's to get, get bank or brokerage statements showing they have meet the net, the net worth test, get tax returns showing they meet the income test, have a lawyer or accountant or other professional that would have knowledge certify that they meet one of those tests, or 
if they were previously an investor in a 506 B round with a company, they can be quote unquote grandfathered in. But as we move away from 2012, that is sort of falling, falling by the wayside now. Got it. So 506 C, potentially great. You can raise all the money you want online while advertising, but there is this heightened step of verifying income and net worth. And if you below that, even on one person, it can um, it will wreck the exemption and you will have been involved in an unregistered public offering, which is not a good place so to be. So, what are you what are you looking at if you're a founder and you blow that exemption? Like, what are the consequences? Well, my regulator had, I would say, criminal, civil, and <laughs> administrative liability. Um, it's typically not that severe, but it's not great. The general the general remedy for um, having an unregistered securities offering is. If you're sued by one of your investors and you're found liable, you will have to return all of the money. Plus, if it's in Washington, 7% a year. Other states, it's higher. Um, you can be barred as a founder from raising money up to 10 years. If Yikes. the Securities Division, for instance, takes an enforcement action against you and your company and you're found liable of securities fraud or having unregistered offering, this kind of parade of horribles. Yeah. <laughs> it can be a long time before you're allowed to raise money again. Um, technically, theoretically, you could go to jail that does require kind of actual criminal fraud yeah. and misrepresentation. Yeah, I mean, so. Bernie made offers his exactly. something along those lines. So, you know, you're kind of running the mill honest founder, doesn't have to worry about that, but the civil and administrative penalties can be um, tough enough to yeah. make you want to comply. Got it. Um, earlier you were mentioning advertising, and when you're talking about advertising, you just mean advertising the sale of securities, right? Not just advertising in general. Correct. Okay. And that's cool. a good question, just to clarify. Just wanted to double check that. All right. So let's continue along the, the hypothetical I proposed earlier. So a founder's trying to raise like 500 grand from some friends and family and a few angel investors. What sort of issues come come to mind if they if they uh, come to you and say they're, they're trying to do that sort of a round? Well, the first issue might be psychological more than legal, that they're really excited to get their business off the ground. They've found investors. They really, not all founders, many founders just kind of want to say yes, find a reason to say yes, and get going. Understandable. But even at this early stage, critically at this early stage, you really want to vet the people who will be investing in your company and have a good relationship with and trust them because these will be the people when things are not going so well early on, you may need to raise more money from you'll need to be your advocates out in the investor community, talking to other angels or potential venture capitalists that are doing due diligence. Or later down the line, let's say you give away terms that are possibly too sweet or give them too much power early on, they can be a major roadblock from other later investors coming on, larger investors, or potentially you know get into fights with those investors that you really need at that stage in your company's growth um, to go to the next level. So while it's very tempting to jump on the first offer or checks you see you always need to think strategically about what the next what your next steps are what you want to do and then two how your relationship with these folks now will impact potential future relationships down the line with other investors yeah i think that's a that's a great point i think that's something that people often overlook especially newer attorneys like thinking about the psychological aspect mm-hmm. of our job the, the part of being a counselor so i think that that was a uh... That was a, a really good point. And it never it never gets old, that part of the practice. You're always yeah. developing it. Sometimes you feel like you've like heard something over and over again, but oftentimes, at least in my, my experience, there's often a little twist, and if you like assume that the client's the same as the last client, you're going to miss something, and you can't, can't have that. But at the same time, it, it does help seeing similar stories come up. And let me tie that point back to the, um, the non-accredited investor point, is just 
in my practice and working with the partner I work for has been doing it for 30 years, one of the reasons we shy away from allowing people to let unaccredited investors in is oftentimes, even though they say they know what's going on, they know the money is going to be locked up possibly for 10 plus years, they may never see a return. Inevitably, 12 months later, they need that money back. They thought they were going to get 300%. They don't recall ever hearing these sort of things. And they are the ones that, um, not always as a rule, but are more often than not going to be the ones that will cause problems. They need it later. more. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, I guess, theoretically what the security laws are for. But yeah. another reason to vet your early investors carefully yeah. and think about that. So, so I think we're in just a minute. We'll transition and start talking about some of like the deal terms. But before we do, let's spend just a minute talking about um, raising money from friends and family and what sort of securities exemptions options there are for those you know founders looking to, to um, raise money from their friends or family who might not be accredited investors. All right. So at the federal level, we'll do federal and then state. There's this the really for lack of a better term, they call it the Founders Exemption. It's called Rule 4A2, formerly 4-2. It's the non-public offering exemption. And this is sort of the classic exemption that when you have three founders in a room together, they're all there at the beginning, they all have all of the information, and they're all entering on the same terms, can rely on this non-public offering exemption. There's no filings, there's no official disclosure requirement, it is a gray area driven by case law and the SEC has kept it that way somewhat intentionally. It's okay for founders when you start branching out into even friends and family and other folks beyond that, that realm, it, particularly if they're unsophisticated or not accredited, it can get a little iffy as to whether they qualify, but it's a gray area. At the state level, depending on what state you're dealing with, uh, it can be difficult. Washington is a difficult state. In Washington, there is a state-level version of this non-public offering exemption. It's opaque, not very clear, and from my experience with the DFI, they are more apt to be restrictive interpreting it than allowing um, friends, family, and other non-sophisticated investors in. Other states have adopted uh, their own flavor of exemptions that will allow, allow offerings that have 20 or fewer people and say Minnesota, and I don't know if that's an exemption in Minnesota, but for example, it's fine. There's sort of a default rule. It's called the 10 and 12. If you have less than 10 investors in the state in an offering that lasts less than 12 months, that is sort of a de facto exemption. Washington does not have that, but other states do. So Got it. That's a long-winded way of saying the federal 4-2 exemption might give you cover for early yeah. rounds with your fa- your co-founders and maybe close friends and family, particularly if they're sophisticated. Um, some states are, provide a little more leeway. Washington is a state where it's a little bit tougher. I can talk about Rule 504 as a backup yeah, if you'd like. Let's, let's dive into that. Because it's not, it's a little wonkier. It's a cousin of 506. Rule 504, they just changed the law. It used to be you could only raise $1 million um, from a limited investor pool. I think is now, correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle, I believe it's $5 million now as of last year. I think that's right. That was changed. So under Rule 504, you can raise up to $5 million, so it's capped. It's not an unlimited amount. You can sell, similar to Rule 506, unlimited amount of unaccredited investors and up to 35, pardon me, unlimited accredited investors, up to 35 non-accredited mm-hmm. investors. However, there is a disclosure requirement. You are required to give these folks um, sort of PPM-like disclosures. And in Washington State, 
in particular, there's a thing called the SCORE form. SCORE is the Small Company Offering Registration Form. It's on the Washington State Securities Division website. It's designed for a separate, a separate exemption, uh, it's a, a SCORE offering. I'll set that aside, but you can take the SCORE form and it's sort of a plug-and-play prospectus. It has, uh, I think it's 70 some odd pages total. A lot of that is instructions, but you literally fill in the blanks all this information about your company, typically people ask their attorneys to help them out with it. Yeah. But you can use that as a disclosure document. And as long as it's filled out in good faith and completely at the Washington State DFI, who would be the primary enforcer in Washington for uh, poor disclosure, recognizes that as a valid disclosure document for a Rule 504 exemption. So if you have um, a small round in Washington, or with primar- primarily Washington invest- investors, you can file a Form D claiming the 504 exemption with the federal government. File that same Form D with Washington State to claim the 504 exemption in Washington and use the SCORE form as your disclosure document. You can also do your own PPM with the help of an attorney, but a lot of folks that are sort of on a shoestring find score the SCORE form to be easier. helpful. Yeah. Exactly. So that's just going to contain all the information that an inv- investor should see about the company. Exactly. Got it. Hey everyone, this is Gavin and Kyle from the Fieldwork Podcast. This is your friendly little reminder that you can get CLE credits just for listening. After this episode, go to yourfieldguide.com to receive your CLE credits. And to convince those in charge that you actually listened, you'll need this ultra-secret code. Control. What was that? Control. Alright, control is your secret code. And now, back to the show. Generally, in, in what I've seen, and there's two different types of uh, startup uh, financing documents. It's equity or debt or mm-hmm. maybe something in between. Um, can you just talk about the difference be- between the two and maybe like if you have a, a preference for what, like, uh, what you might recommend for a client or like in different cir- circumstances, one one's good and one one it, the Abs- other is? Absolutely. The two we see, well, equity is just classic. You own a piece of the company. Yep. Uh, you've got unless there's preferred equity, which might have its own terms, is plain equity is you don't have a claim on the assets of the company, you've got a claim on the profits. Whereas debt, you don't have a claim on the profits of the company, but you have a claim on the assets. So you get paid first, you get paid interest, and if things go south, you can claim the assets. So those are just your cleave your two asset classes in half at a high level. They can get a lot more colorful when you get into the minutiae and start negotiating specific terms. So at an early level, We'll typically see convertible notes, which are loan documents or notes that convert into equity of the company, typically preferred equity, which gives those investors certain preferences and rights, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little bit, deal terms. That is very common to see, and the intent intent is typically to convert into stock. People don't issue convertible notes to startup companies because they're looking for a steady, steady stream of income. It's for this ability to convert into equity at a low valuation. On the flip side of that, instead of seeing preferred stock rounds or kind of really early, call them friends and family or seed stock, uh, we've seen SAFEs get a lot of traction and SAFEs is an acronym for Simple Agreement for Future Equity. It came out of the Bay Area in I think 2013 or 14. It was a VC creation. Yeah, I often think that that uh that name is like misleading to the point that it like bothers me because like uh, startup <laughs> financings are inherently unsafe for in- investors. But yeah. I appreciate the irony of the name. They are in fact very unsafe yeah. for investors. Um, for the benefit of the of the audience, um, 
a safe, it's essentially an equity instrument, and I believe the IRS may have actually determined it's an equity instrument. I'd have to double-check that. Uh, it was unclear for a long time. Perhaps yeah. the commission not, gave I, some guidance not sure on it. either. But it's an agreement where instead of having a note where you give someone $100,000, you get 5%, and you can convert at a discount or some sort of other sweetener, you give $100,000 to the company with a promise that when they raise preferred financing in the future, you will convert into that round at a preferable valuation or with some other sweeteners. The downside being if that round never happens, you're kind of SOL. Um, your best case scenario, if the company gets bought, you get your money back plus, I think, uh, depending on the terms of 100% liquidation preference or some sort of you know little sweetener. But it's uh, you're gambling that the company's going to have several financing rounds you'll participate early on at a nice valuation and things will go great. That's safe. Yeah. And so, but from a, from an investor standpoint, it kind of makes sense because if the company doesn't have a second round, like the investment's probably not going to work out, right? Because it's kind of an all or nothing sort of thing generally. Absolutely. Between the two, if we have a client that has a, a convertible not option and a safe option on roughly similar terms, would always include them to encourage them to do the safe because they have an unlimited time horizon. And frankly, that you know, there's not a debt instrument out there. So they, yeah. they, they, things don't work out. They don't technically have to declare bankruptcy, go to receivership, or other kind of sucky things that go on when yeah. things don't work out. So what what are some of the? I mean, you basically just touched on it, but the, the what are some of the problems that come up with the like the date, like the maturity date on a convertible note? Oh, it's great. Let's say you've got a round of convertible notes. The term is eighteen months. You think you're going to get financing from angels or VCs in six months, so the term date is just sort of a formality. Well, roundabouts, it's 18 months later, things haven't gone to plan, things are still in development. You're in a hard position where you're going cap in hand back to your note holders to ask for an extension, which they will typically want more more rights, more rights some sort, preferences, yeah. additional interest, a deeper discount, etc. Uh, and if they refuse, they can just uh, take your company over and shut it down or run through your creation. It's not a fun yeah. sort of predicament to be in. And it can put put companies in a tough spot when they're trying to raise money too, right? If they're bumping up against that, if it's they're like 17 months in and they're trying to That's raise money, bit. they're not going to have a ton of leverage necessarily. Exactly. Great. I would call they, they get into like the vulture financing scenario. Yeah. It's um, like anything. <laughs> exactly. Like we'll take terms, any terms, just please give us money so we can get these notes converted and yeah. move on with our lives. So. Yeah. Anything's better than our note holders taking over our company. So Exactly. Um do you have a between the different types of uh, so there's like the safe and then there's the kiss which is like another sort of uh, convertible equity or convertible debt type document? Do you have a preference between those? Actually, I'll, I'll admit to you, Kyle. I've heard the heard of the kiss. I've read it. We've never actually had a client in our practice use it. It's been all safes, whether the yeah. safe is part of the market or we just happen to have had a streak of them. Have you ever no. used the kiss in your practice? No, I don't think, I think everybody's always done a safe, but I often talk about it just mm -hmm. like as an option. But uh, yeah, no, I think everybody's just more familiar with the safe. It right. seems like it's like, it's one, won the uh, uh, proliferation race or whatever. It's so like everybody, everybody uses it. So. The first mover advantage, and I think the name, as you say, the safe probably just sticks in people's yeah. minds. So if you, uh, in the event you have one in your practice, give me a call. I'd love to talk about it with you to yeah. see how it differs. Yeah, definitely. Um... What are some of the terms in a 
startup financing round that you tend to see frequently negotiated? Like, what are some of the, the main, like, the big ones? Other than, I mean, I'm sure price is, is one, but let's yeah. skip over that one because that one's pretty obvious. The big ones, you've got your valuation, and that drives sort of what percentage of the company is going to the investors versus what is retained by the founders and any other early investors. So that's, I mean, a super basic broad one, but a lot of kind of fighting negotiation over is we're going to give up 20%, 30%, etc. That's a huge term. Uh, beyond the basic deal points, liquidation preference, probably not that, liquidation preference is one, but I meant to say was participation rights. We find that participation rights in the last 18 months to two years, always contested, are viciously protected by um, outside investors. I think the strategy is, you know, when you're in the VC game or the angel investing game, you write a lot of checks, and when you've got winners, you want to be able to double down on them when yeah. things are going well. So the ability to have automatic rights that allow you to participate in these future financing, which is what participation rights are, are rights that lead investors want and they don't want to share them with other folks uh, if they can help it because they are very valuable and they want to retain as much th- as much ability to hoard future investment rounds that for companies that are doing well for themselves. So I'd say that's the one we see the most push back on yeah so you have some founders that don't want to give that right or, or are hesitant or like that it's a problematic like within the financing round if there's like multiple investors yeah the issue we typically see is it's not that the finance the founders don't want to give it out because they, they recognize that it's typically a yeah key point that at least the lead's going to get what we'll see it is they have a lot of convertible note holders their friends and family they want everybody to have participation rights in the vcs or the angels are like everybody doesn't get participation rights and then so trying to negotiate that keep the early investor base happy make them realize that it's probably in their best interest to take the, the money even if that makes them upset or how to maybe get the investor on board to say give these people one round of participation rights and they burn off thereafter yep. trying to get creative and negotiating it so everyone is happy but that's the scenario we typically see. Cool. You mentioned liquidation preference. Um, what are those like? What are some of like the the general terms that people might be negotiating on as oh. far as the liquidation preferences go? Sure. the The common, most common term we'll see is uh, the venture capitalists will have a liquidation preference of say one x, which means they get their their entire investment back first before anybody else does, and then they get paid out with everybody else. Or you'll have terms where they get to elect either to be paid out a 1x or 2x liquidation preference or convert their shares to common and if there's a sale or an IPO later, they participate along with everybody else. Typically, that's scenarios where everyone's done really well and it makes much more sense to take that route than turn your 10 million into 20 or 30 million. Uh, how about, a, let's let's talk about one, one other uh, term that I think might be negotiated. What about board seats? Is that something that, that people um, fight over? And like when, like is it something that people usually get in the first round or are they able to, to wait until the second round? Or That year, a mind reader, that's exactly where I was headed after on my list of mental terms to go through. The board seats are critical and they are negotiated heavily and I've seen in my practice it very reasonable through at least the series seed round for the founders to retain control, have say two of three board seats, series seed director has one, the common has two or three. If they get into an A round, I've seen it very common where the founders will have two, series A will have a director, series seed will have a director, so there'll be two preferred directors, two common directors and a tie break, or three common directors and two preferreds. When you get to the sort of B round or beyond, that's when you really start to see... Investors hold the board. Exactly. It may not be an overwhelming uh, holding the board, but they have the preferred directors 
generally at that point between the various rounds will hold control of the board. So that is sort of the inflection point. If you've got a really great company, if you're just killing it, if you're Facebook, for instance, maybe you can hold on longer um, if you're on that sort of trajectory. But I'd say on a hypothetical good but not outstanding sort of trajectory, B is where you're going to start to see the board tip in favor of the investors. Got it. Um, when So we talked about uh, valuation uh, briefly. One thing that I've seen people get tripped up on is pre-money versus post-money mm-hmm. when they're talking about different valuations. Is that something you can touch on quickly? Oh, sure. I'll try and not get too wonky about it. I don't think it has to be, but the... I'm just trying to think round numbers. Let's say you've got a Series A financing and they want to do... They'll value at $10 million pre-money. So in the lead investor's estimation, the company's worth $10 million before the round. They'd like to invest $5 million at this $10 million valuation. At the end of the round, the valuation of the company will be $15 million. You had $10 million in company value beforehand. You've now received $5 million more. So on top pure, of that. On top of that. Yep. So in pure accountancy book value terms, you have a $10 million company, throw $5 million more in the bank, $15 million company. You can quibble with accounts whether that is actually accurate or not, but that's sort of the general the accounting gist, math yeah. as to why that is the way it is. So at the end of that round, you'll have, let's just say you had one investor. You have that investor that owns one-third of your company, $5 million, out of a $15 million total post-money valuation. So I don't got the crux yeah. of the question, Kyle, but that's no, sort that, of how yeah. I think about it. Yeah, that's that's helpful. So do you ever – is that something that, that when people are talking about valuations, do you ever – find that they like are misunderstanding like that there's a miscommunication because one's talking pre-money and one's talking post-money or which which one do people usually refer to if they're talking about the value of a company in, in like just negotiating terms it definitely seems to be the hang up on the pre-money valuation yep. that could be for a variety of reasons psychologically it could be an egotistical reason it needs to be double digit 10 million yeah uh, i heard it was worth eight not six um you know the more sophisticated founders ones that are handy with excel can do a cap table and they can see at the end of the, the, this round what their fully diluted holdings of the company will be, which is really what the metric should be on. And let's say you had a round before and you're going to have a down round where your latest valuation is less than your prior valuation, which has a lot of issues and I can see why people get heartburn about that. Um, but the metrics to keep your eye on at the end of the day are as the founders, what are your what are you holding? What percentage of the company are you holding after the round? What is your fully diluted stake? So you need to keep that above wherever that needs to be in your mind mentally at those junctures, rather than getting hung up on pre and post money valuations, which to a degree are not accounting fiction, but in private company transactions, they are numbers at times rather to thin air or difficult to support with metrics, just because there isn't a lot there other than intangibles, people work in software, etc. So at the end of the day, how much the company do you hold, folks on that versus pre, post, etc. Yeah. Got it. Um, do you watch, Do you watch, have you ever seen uh, Silicon Valley? Oh, yes. That? Oh, does, that, yes. does that ring ring true for you, like some of the some parts of the show? That's a really funny question because when I first started at Ed McNall in 2015, the show I think was in its second season. And I'd seen a few episodes while I was still at the state, and then working at McDonald with startups, the uh, it was a little almost too stressful. It was like actually, it's supposed to be satire, but yeah. it's so thinly veiled that yeah. it was like too close to real life. As I we got into seasons three, four, and five, um, I've lightened up a little bit. Yeah. 
and I see the humor in it, but we've had more than one occasion where something has happened on the show and it has appeared in our practice like within weeks later, so I don't know if it's predictive power or yeah. it kind of puts it out there it's in like, the ether subconsciously, but um, the show is it's more accurate than you would think. Yeah, it's yeah. That's that's been my experience too. It's really funny. It's like you mentioned the down round, and that had me remembering the scene where there's like a founder at the bar, and he like took too much money early on, and his company was like valued <laughs> too highly, and he realized that he should have just like valued his company more low, uh, you know, at a lower valuation earlier, and he was just like completely like in despair because he took too much money. I would say about that show, the writing is great. They hit the legal aspects. The fun, I mean, they're yeah. really spot on. You could almost watch it as like a, you know, a quasi-tutorial yeah. at a high level if, in like a one-on-one sort of sense because they touch on these sort of questions. Totally. Um, do you... So one thing, one question that I get a, a decent amount is about dilution and it's like a founder like worried about like getting diluted. Do you have a like a common bit of advice that you might give to a founder who's worried about being diluted? Well, that's a really good question, and it ties back to my soliloquy a few minutes ago <laughs> about uh, pre and post money, and just really focus on the dilution. Yeah. Um, I think, as I was saying, it's critical for the founders to have an eye on that because if someone is careless and they're just concerned about raising money or figure it will work out in the future, you can end up being the founder that has four percent of your company and the company IPOs, and you're all long an afterthought. Yeah. And you're going to probably do fine, but be rich, may but not you won't, what you set out to won't do. have control over your baby. Exactly. Uh, the, on the flip side of that, you have individuals that have unrealistic beliefs about how much they should retain, what investors should take, and they can kind of get in their own way because they're holding on too tight. If you're taking sure. other people's monies, yep. you got to be prepared to give some, uh, some yeah, control up. Yeah, something. You, exactly. And the further along you down the path, the more control it's going to be. So it's, it, like many things, it's a dichotomy or a balancing act yeah. to... You know, I, this isn't something I know off the top of my head, but do you have any guess at like what Bezos has of Amazon or Zuckerberg has of Facebook? You think they have like 20, 30 percent? Oh, something like I that? read some statistics on this recently and I forget. It was. Does that ballpark sound right? That's what I would guess. Like, I think Bezos is now down to more like 12, but it's still. A right, it's Amazon, so. Yeah. Maybe it's less than that, but it's, it's a, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It's a substantial amount. Right. Dude's Zucker- rich. Exactly. <laughs> Zuckerberg is is higher than that, but he's sort of invented the concept, or at least the more recent concept of the founder that still retains control of the company, right. even though it's public. He's got like super majority voting shares or something along those lines. Yeah, it's, he's got like the golden shares or the golden class of shares that controls the company, which um, is is impressive if you can get it, but pretty uncommon. Let's switch gears a little bit and just talk about some practice management type things. Um, oh boy. Yeah. So, are there are there any uh, resources um, that you find really helpful for someone like that's in this line of work, a podcast or a blog? I mean, I guess we t- we touched on the Silicon Valley being like sort of <laughs> helpful, even though it's in satire. Silicon Valley always great. Number one resource um, from from a I'm trying to think now the NVCA. Uh, I can't think of the name of the website. It just shows up in my email. It's my email every morning. It's got a nice digest of the news and kind of articles of interest, NVCA being the National Venture Capital Association. And I, for the life of me, cannot remember the name of their website right now, but I've seen I, a lot of stuff on there. I don't know that one. I'm going to have to check that one out. It just sort of showed up in my inbox one yeah. day. Um, I'd gone to the website. I've used their template documents before, but it's just got a nice digest yeah. of the news and trends. 
the website I like generally, it's more of a finance, a broad finance website, is Bloomberg. Um, they always have timely news for the regular financial markets, but they've got a very good tech section that covers, it's sort of stuff that bleeds over into, it's on the stuff that is, it's not so obscure that it's not really worth reading it. They catch stuff as it's sort of bubbling into the mainstream, so it's timely, but also curated. And I find the geek wires and tech crunches, even though they've been out there for a long time, yeah. that's their beat, they're on the beat, if you just kind of keep an eye on that, there's a lot of uh, a lot of noise in those websites, because there's just a lot of noise in the space, sure. but they also pick up good stuff, so if you troll those sites, you'll kind of have an idea of not just what's going on news-wise, but kind of the vibe and the pulse of what's going on in the industry. Sweet. Are there are there any uh, industries that you're seeing a lot of action in, or that, that you find per, like especially fun to, to, to help out with? For whatever reason, we had a lot of VR clients come in a couple years ago. There was the, this big surge, 2015-16 yeah. VR clients, and we still have several of them, and it's theoretically go, undergoing this trauma disillusionment, as they say. But the clients we've had have been doing really well, and they're doing Sweet. neat stuff, and yeah. it's, we've really gotten to see the... We'll see if it ever gets legs or goes somewhere, but there's some really interesting stuff in the pipeline for late 2019-2021, supposedly, that could be really interesting so that's a space offhand that i can speak to just because i've seen yeah. stuff in that field but that's it's just got kind of got cool people in that space also they're sort of outside the box thinkers and yeah they're very, they're very competent they've got hardware skills they've got deep software skills it's just really hard stuff so they're they're cool clients yeah have you uh read ready player one or watched the the movie uh, i'll admit that i started the book have not finished it and it did not get to see the movie bec- even though I really need to because of the whole Oasis thing and yeah. all of our clients refer to when they're yeah. talking about VR. Get a, an eight-month-old, as you know. You've met Baby yep. Magnus. Yep. He, uh, he's taken up a lot of our time Yeah, the they do year. that, don't they? Yeah, they, they do, really but do. that's my professional reading list. Yeah. Ready player one. I read it, oh, six months ago or so, but I really liked it. I found that like once I got, like I don't know, halfway in or something, I couldn't put it down. I, I've never met anybody that said they did not like that book, and I've heard the movie. Everybody I know saw the movie said it was a lot of fun, so I need to get caught up. What uh, what's something in your practice that or you know around the office that you couldn't live without? Something that's just awesome that other people should know about. Coffee is really important. Yes. Uh, moving beyond that, <laughs> I developed a pretty good working knowledge of the SEC Edgar database when I was at Securities Division. Yeah. It's not really complicated to operate, but there's just a lot of acronyms and jargon um, that's really handy for the securities lawyer looking yep. at private financings, being able to try and sleuth details out of. Um, other folks' private rounds and yep. interpolate what the terms might have been. A tool I got turned on to uh, recently by another attorney I know is called Intelligize, and this is directed more at practitioners. It's a, an SEC lawyer decided they needed a better way to search their own records than the, SC, the Edgar database. And so it's, it's created this software that trolls all of the public filings because they're all electronic yeah. and curates and tags them. And so it's a, essentially created a searchable a database, an Edgar database that's searchable by terms. So I could say, I would like to see what the latest risk, fa- risk factors are for the Trump tax cuts. Put in a search, and you'll get that all of cool. them. It's Intelligize? Really, it's called Intelligize. And um, you just get, we just type Intelligize into Google, it'll pop up? It'll pop up. I can't I think it's not, it might be Lexus. I can't remember who the provider is who bought it and now Thompson runs Reuters it. Thompson Reuters or Lexus, right? Exactly. One, yeah, yeah, one of the big providers. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how much it costs. We're in a pilot program right now with it, and I'm going to ask the firm to buy it because it's coming super handy. Nice. What uh, 
what's the coolest thing about your practice? Like, why, if someone's thinking about becoming a securities lawyer, what what's the the main reason that they should do it? And then, or you can answer in either order. But like, what's something that also they should have on their radar that maybe they you know maybe you wished you knew ahead of time <laughs> like uh something about the job that's maybe not not the best oh absolutely that's, I, I think those go hand in hand so the part i really really like about it is i so we do not just financing we do outside general counsel employment ip uh day-to-day commercial contracts but financing is kind of where my heart and soul is at that's what yeah. i like the most and it's i call it it's like being the deal sherpa it's like particularly in startup um the startup realm you have folks that they're not professional deal makers. They're not, you know, investment bankers or real estate professionals that do this all the time. It's their life and their company, and they need help. And so you kind of get them from the bottom of the mountain to the top. The stress, so that's the fun part, is getting to the top of the mountain. Everyone's happy. They've got their money. You can kind of really help these companies grow. Much like climbing Everest, Everest, people sort of underestimate how hard the process is to raise money from convincing investors to actually invest in your company to then actually consummating the deal, going through the due diligence, putting up with all the irritating questions and getting poked by venture capitalists. Let's say you forgot to get somebody to sign an IP assignment three years ago and they've since left the company and now live in South America and the VC won't fund until they sign an invention assignment because their IP was important to the company yeah. in the beginning, making them go do that. Uh, and so they address, you know, as part of being the Sherpas, you have to sometimes drag people up the mountain, and sometimes they're not real happy to go on the journey yeah. with you when it gets hard. Yeah. But almost in a, invariably, they're happy when they get to the top. But so yeah, yep. that is my dichotomy there. Cool. I like it. That is fantastic. Well, I think that's about all the time that we have, so I think we'll we'll wrap up there. So we talked about uh, securities regulations and how the, the default is that you need to do an IPO, uh, file an S1 with the SEC unless you have an exemption. The most common exemption is a Rule 506 offering. If you do 506B, then uh, you don't have to do the heightened verification, but you are limited in uh, how you go about getting your investors. Specifically, you can't um, you can't use advertising. So that's some of the, the main points we talked about when it comes to securities regulation. And then on deal terms, we talked about some of the most heavily negotiated deal terms. Um, board board seats is one uh when, when we were talking about board seats we were talking about how by you know the first first few rounds and founders are often able to retain control but maybe by you know series b there the board is uh, going to be controlled more by the investors often um we also talked about liquidation preferences um and, and valuation and uh, so those are some of the some of the things we talked about tonight and it was a, a great conversation thanks for your time jordan okay. glad to be here kyle thanks again